it is another opportunity that we have that's a joyous one indeed the capability that's ours by virtue of health and other matters to assemble on this Sunday afternoon and as we do so to appreciate it is the first day of the week and the wonderful privilege that rests with us to be able to assemble as per the commandments of Acts 20 verse 7 as well as 1 Corinthians 16 verses 1 and 2 and to offer unto God a heartfelt, genuine, acceptable worship we pray unto our marvelous Heavenly Father. On the Sunday evenings for the last several weeks now, we have been involved in a series of lessons concerning the Bible and science. It is not unusual for it to be perceived that those subjects are not only distinct, but that they are contradictory. It has been my interest and also my hope throughout the series that each of us could come to a firmer appreciation that the Bible does not, in fact, contradict true science. There is not a single known fact of science that contradicts the sacred Word of God. In fact, the very first lesson in the series set that idea before us, and as we studied that idea then, we proceeded to use that concept to formalize what science is, the understanding of the power of the Scriptures, and in the weeks that followed, we looked successively at astronomy and saw that many things that are known to be true in astronomy were declared in the Word of God centuries before scientists came to discover it. Similarly in biology, we noted biogenesis, for example, stated in the opening declaration of Genesis chapter 1, and science still maintains the correctness of that presentation. Following astronomy and biology, we turned our attention to look at the combination of oceanography and meteorology, finding even yet in them the powerful aspect of appreciating the nature that even God's Word contains truths in both of those areas as well. In geology, we noticed the age of the earth and found that catastrophism is taught in the Bible, though many in the scientific world today refuse to accept it. Finally, we looked at chemistry and physics and found on a number of occasions still some of the basic laws such as thermodynamics and also the notion of atoms is even to be found at least indirectly in the nature of the Word of God. As we've looked at all of them, I think that we've each been impressed by the fact that often millennia passed. That is to say thousands of years between the time those declarations were made and the actual fact of scientists discovering them on their own. Doesn't that give us great confidence in the correctness of the Word of God on those subjects as well as all others? It is the case tonight we will look at yet another aspect of what may seem to be the ancient past, namely that of dinosaurs. I suspect that there are not many subjects that are more capable of captivating and more capable of enthralling those who would be of interest in those majestic creatures of the long-distant past. In fact, quite often the subject of dinosaurs is one that I believe we could perhaps use to see some opening comments in the lesson this evening. And it is in that way I would ask you to at least consider a few initial remarks and also some thoughts that will prompt us to look a little further into some of these matters as the lesson goes on tonight. Go to any library, it would seem. And amongst the books that children are more often quick to access and to check out and read with great thoroughness is a book on dinosaurs. Those large animals seem to just captivate the mind as we ponder and think about an animal that large. And often their shape was intriguing. They were covered in their bodies with various things we rarely, if at all, see today. 
And these animals were just amazing. Children often can throw out these polysyllabic names of these dinosaurs and just speak them with relative ease. And perhaps you and I can be amazed at how many facts they can quote and know about these dinosaurs from the long distant past. I might mention in the same way that it's not unusual for the evolutionists to parade the notion of these dinosaurs and to use that as, from their perspective, a proof that organic evolution took place. Tonight we shall ask the question, does the existence of dinosaurs prove that, or, that evolution took place? If not, what might be said about their existence? Does the Bible say anything about dinosaurs? Is the word to be found anywhere? If so, what was the context? If not, are there any indirect references to dinosaurs? We shall seek to answer all of those questions during the course of our study time tonight. In the notion of dinosaurs, I've proceeded to list just a few, and I might mention a very few, of those rather lengthy names that are so often referenced and used to name these impressive animals. Perhaps you have seen movies like Jurassic Park. It was a major multi-million dollar maker for Hollywood not many years back where dinosaurs appeared in it. And as those dinosaurs were there, it often captivated all of those who went to watch those movies. One would see a Tyrannosaurus Rex within the concourse of that movie. Or perhaps, secondly, I've listed a Stegosaurus, an Iguanodon. Fourthly, I went ahead to notice a Megalosaurus and an Edmontosaurus. As you consider furthermore Triceratops, a Brontosaurus, a Brachiosaurus, an Allosaurus, an Acrocanthosaurus, and I simply went on to say etc. If you wish to look and do some research into these, you'll find a large, large number that scientists have given names to. And I've chosen to include a picture or two along the way just to remind us of some of the sizes of the animals to which these names refer. This is a Brachiosaurus. You can see, in fact, if you look carefully, that there are some other animals contained within that same picture. And even as you look at the sizes, they too are much larger than a human being. You can imagine that if a person were to have been present in that photo, in that picture, that person would have been extraordinarily small compared to the size of that Brachiosaurus. But as you notice, the sizes of some of these animals... Some of the largest of these dinosaurs weighed over 100 tons. That's over 200,000 pounds. These were massive, at least some of them, very massive creatures. But in addition to this Brachiosaurus, here's a Tyrannosaurus rex. You can see the ferociousness of this creature. One can easily see why one would necessarily be rather fearful of such an animal. If one were to picture something like that coming towards you or near you, one could easily seek for a place to hide without any need to hasten at all. You can see in the background a few other animals as well that were in the dinosaur family. Whether it be the Tyrannosaurus rex, the Brachiosaurus, or even this Ankylosaurus. Notice again how unusual this animal appears. You can see the outer covering were certainly the case that he was well protected. 
one would probably not take much of an attack upon him due to the severity of injury due to all the pointed spears and spikes upon his shell. Whether it be any of these that I have chosen to make a picture of or to find a picture of, and I might be quick to say these are all artists' conceptions of what these dinosaurs look like. Let's return to one of those earlier sheets and make a few more comments about these dinosaurs. Despite the names, despite those artists' renditions of these dinosaurs, it's entirely fair to now notice just a few general concepts about the names. That word dinosaur, D-I-N-O-S-A-U-R, it is a composition of two words that means terribly great lizards, or in some renditions, fearfully great lizards. Thus, when that name was first given to these animals, they were recognized for the terror and the massive size that many of them occupied. It's certainly fair to say that now we can come to ask some interesting questions, I think, from the perspective of the Bible about them. When you and I are asked by our youngsters and our children and other friends of a younger sort of age that we may have, and they might ask the question, did dinosaurs really exist? Is this a figment of some other scientist's imagination? Did they really exist? One of the things that we would do that would be a great disservice to them is to try to portray to them that no, they did not really exist. That in fact, they are merely some conglomeration of the imagination of various and sundry scientists. Dinosaurs did exist. Their fossils have been found on all seven continents. And in fact, there have been massive dinosaur graveyards that have been unearthed and discovered. One is even in this country, out in the western part of, of the United States, where in a given area, say, of not comprising more than not, not too many acres, many, many fossilized dinosaur bones have been discovered and found. But that's only one of many others. Russia, the former Soviet Union, is known to have several of these dinosaur graveyards. And you can imagine the shock that a youngster would have if after you and I telling him or her that these dinosaurs never existed, if they were to visit one of the science museums and see this erection of a Tyrannosaurus rex standing before them, or one of these other skeletons that have been put together, many bones of which perhaps have been found. It's hard to refute evidence like that. The dinosaurs did exist. As I mentioned, their fossils have been found on very many occasions, all seven of the continents, but that isn't the only remark that's worthy of being made. The very last thing I ask you to notice, though, on, the, on that screen is just a few of the claims of, of the world that I list there as paleontology. We listed not many Sunday evenings ago that geologic time scale. You might remember the picture of that that I showed. According to that geologic time scale, the dinosaurs became extinct about 65 million years ago. And remember that on that same time scale, you and I are told that men or mankind did not evolve until about 2 million years ago. And hence, an important thing to notice is that from the evolutionist perspective, men and dinosaurs never coexisted. The dinosaurs became extinct well over 60 million years before man ever evolved, according to evolution. 
That point we must keep resoundingly in mind, for we shall have to ask, does the Bible say anything about the coexistence of dinosaurs and minion? Does it say anything about that that would lead us to call into question yet again the geologic timetable presented in, in so many science textbooks? With that last comment on that screen made, let's now move past again our pictures since we've already seen them and turn our attention indeed to the Bible and dinosaurs. One of the first things I would ask you to call back into mind is one of the features that we saw in that lesson on geology. How old is earth? We reached this conclusion from the Word of God that the earth is no older than about 7,000 years. We immediately run into problems with dinosaurs being told to us that became extinct 65 million years ago. The earth is not even that old. With thoughts like that in mind, we can immediately proceed to notice we need to consider a different perspective than what the evolutionists are so quick to tell us. There must be something wrong. In fact, in light of all of that set of ideas, might we notice that what does Genesis chapter 1 remind us? When we saw the record of God's creation through the six days of that opening week, we notice that on the sixth day, we find the record of God's creation of the land-dwelling animals. And to use one of the phrases that occurs in Genesis chapter 1, it's those animals that creepeth upon the earth. It's significant that that reference to creepeth seems to refer to those on all fours, land-dwelling creatures. We have noticed also in light of those comments that those dinosaurs, as they were fashioned and thus made on the sixth day, might we remember that later on, on that same day, God fashioned Adam. We can immediately see from the biblical perspective that Adam coexisted with the dinosaurs. They were all made on the same day. When we refer to these dinosaurs, it might be careful to notice a rather stringent definition. The word dinosaur, by definition, refers to a land-dwelling, air-breathing creature. It does not thus, by definition, refer to an animal that would have lived in the water or an animal that would have been the one who could survive beneath water. By definition, land-dwelling, air-breathing is the restriction. That points us again to day number six in God's creative activity, affirming that again the dinosaurs were fashioned on the same day that man was. We should thus appreciate from the perspective of the Bible that there was men living at the same time as the dinosaurs. We shall look later in our study tonight and ask, are there any scientific evidences that that was the case? Is there any evidence that most evolutionists would never mention to you that does assert that there were men coexisting with dinosaurs? Well, to answer that question, we come, in fact, to a set of evidences which I thought it would be interesting for us to consider with some degree of brevity this evening. The first one I'd like to mention is the Doheny Expedition. Dr. Samuel Hubbard, in 1924, proceeded to a set of expeditionary work in the southwestern part of this country, in fact, in, in, in the state of Arizona, as he proceeded to investigate the specific dwellings of the Indians he ran across and should, we should say discovered a set of things that were truly remarkable. In the caves of the southwestern part of this country, 
the Havasupai excavation arena, he found on the walls of these caves carved into the rocks a number of rather obviously identifiable creatures. There were elephants and ibexes and men and dinosaurs and so on down the line. Well, let's revisit that picture again. He saw an elephant, an ibex, a man, a dinosaur. Carvings of dinosaurs there on the walls in the southwestern part of this country. I might position and say that there would be no problem with the drawing of an elephant or of an ibex. And by the way, an ibex is merely one of those kind of goats with very long horns. Thus, those kinds of animals are very well understood and have well been documented, and they're known even today. But what about a dinosaur? How could a human have drawn a picture of a dinosaur like that if he'd never seen one? And yet, all those carvings are on the walls there in those caves. I might position, though, that that raises actually two problems for evolution. One of them is this coexistence of dinosaurs and humans. There's actually another problem that's raised for the, for the matter of evolution. If we remember that geologic timetable, that asserted, did it not, that the reptiles evolved first, and it was many millions of years later before the mammals ever evolved. And by mammals, we mean things like elephants and ibexes. And yet, on the walls of this cave, you had mammals and reptiles, pictures all there as if they were coexistent. It's not shocking you will not read about the Havasupai Doheny expedition in any evolutionary book. It is a subject that is sidestepped with rapidity and marvelous haste because the conclusions of it are obvious. A man or some series of men drew the pictures of these elephants and dinosaurs and ibexes and other things. And furthermore, the picture of the dinosaur. In fact, even scientists who have had the audacity to make comments about it have asserted that the picture of the dinosaur is in a position as a man would likely be apt to see him. He was raised up on his hind legs, perhaps fending off a party of men who were attacking him. That's but one evidence. Are there any others that men coexisted with dinosaurs? May I mention to you the Inca burial stones? If you've studied or remember some of the things you may have learned in a typical history class, you might remember a study of the Inca Indians. It was a marvelous civilization of people, very advanced for their position. They lived from about 500 to 1500 A.D., and thus they were less than 2,000 years ago now. What is so fascinating about these Inca Indian burial stones is that the following things are to be noted about them. In the early part of the 1900s, less than 100 years ago now, an interesting gentleman by the name of Dr. Cabrera came across various sundry of these burial stones. He was very intrigued by them, and he began at that point to collect all of them that he could find. As I understand it, his collection came to number well over 30,000 of them. On these burial stones, which they, the Inca Indians buried with those of their civilization when they passed away, one can find pictures of any number of interesting things, sometimes people, sometimes landscapes, sometimes dinosaurs. Pictures of dinosaurs on these burial stones. Not only that, the dinosaurs often are depicted with great detail. 
There are, in fact, various things about the dinosaurs that scientists did not know until seeing it on the pictures. Some of them had certain scales and fins and other kinds of matter such as that. In fact, the Stegosaurus is depicted so identically correctly on these burial stones that one can only be amazed by the graphic detail. But doesn't all that raise another question? How could those Indians have known to draw one if they had never seen one? If they had never in their life had any opportunity to witness firsthand a dinosaur, how could they have depicted them so correctly and in such detail? I would submit again that there is no good answer other than the fact they did see one. In fact, in their visibility of them, they were able to draw these pictures and carve them on those stones in majestic detail. But that's only yet a second example. What about the Akambaro figurines? We notice yet another listing and another evidence that I make note of there. In 1945, a gentleman named Dr. Jules Rood as he was visiting in Mexico, he happened to be somewhat of a knowledgeable archaeologist. And as he was riding along one day on the roadway, he saw beside the road these, a portion of a figurine that captured his attention. He began, in fact, to excavate in that area and over the next several years discovered thousands of them. These figurines that were made in the long-distant past, and these figurines were some of them of people, some of them of dinosaurs. And these figurines, again, were marvelously detailed, and one can only ask the question, how could a person have taken clay and molded a figurine to look just like a brontosaurus if he had never seen one? If he had never had opportunity to firsthand witness one, and yet there it was, thousands of these figurines... All of that is to say there really is a somewhat abundant matter of evidence that men did coexist with dinosaurs. In a very brief way, I only chose to mention one more. What about footprints? Would you not find it startling if an archaeologist or a paleontologist in the discovery of a given dinosaur were to find a human footprint right beside it in the same layer of soil and earth? For if so, would that not imply that there was a man walking at about the same time that the dinosaur track had been left, or the dinosaur bone had been discovered? Indeed, those have been found literally hundreds and hundreds of times. Even in the state of Kentucky, which is not far from here, of course, coal veins with dinosaur footprints and human footprints side by side have been found. In the country of Russia, on many occasions, same thing has been discovered. It's safe to say that with a human footprint inside a dinosaur footprint, or a human footprint in the same layer of stratified earth as the bone of a dinosaur, the implication is clear that humans lived at the same time as the dinosaurs. That evidence, I might suggest, isn't often found in science textbooks, but all of this is well documented. We can each read about it, and we can each be convinced of the correctness of every part of it. To list all of those pieces of evidence brings us back to the, the opening book in, in the Bible. Genesis chapter 1 had told us that the dinosaurs, as well as all other such creatures like that, were fashioned on day number 6. We shouldn't then be shocked to read when we come to the flood of Noah's day in Genesis chapters 6, 7, and 8 
that some question thus must be asked. If the dinosaurs are now extinct, as far as we know, there aren't any to be found anywhere on earth, what happened to them to cause the extinction? Why are they no longer here? Some have argued that perhaps they drowned in Noah's flood or that great flood that covered the earth in Noah's day. I might submit that I don't believe that that's defensible from the perspective of the Bible. In Genesis chapter 6, for example, in verse number 19, we read the following. And of every living thing of all flesh, two of every sort shalt thou bring into the ark to keep them alive with thee. They shall be male and female. The implication is since all and every are both mentioned that the dinosaurs would have been a part of the parties present on the ark of Noah's day. But notice in the next chapter, verse 14 of Genesis 7, they and every beast after his kind and all the cattle after their kind and every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth after his kind and every fowl after his kind, every bird of every sort. And they went in unto Noah into the ark two and two of all flesh wherein is the breath of life. Were dinosaurs aboard the ark? Absolutely. Notice in chapter 8 when the flood is ended. In Genesis 8, verse number 18 and 19, And Noah went forth and his sons, and his wife and his sons' wives with him, every beast, every creeping thing, and every fowl, and whatsoever creepeth upon the earth after their kinds went forth out of the ark. Notice again the inspired writer's usage of the word every. And notice all of these were the creeping things it would strongly seem that the dinosaurs were preserved aboard the ark. It's not as though they died in the floodwaters. However, what happened to them afterward? It would seem that they did come off of the ark, but again, they are no longer here today as far as we know. What happened to them? I cannot be too dogmatic about that. I have offered just a few possibilities. Notice that some have argued that the ark wasn't large enough to hold these gigantic creatures. Let's be quick to remember, God did not tell Noah what size animals to take aboard that ark. Given the size of the dinosaurs, I wouldn't be surprised if he took baby dinosaurs. Those that were far smaller, they would not have eaten as much. They would not have caused the problem in terms of size. If he took smaller dinosaurs, no problem at all in them being housed aboard the ark. But when they did come off the ark or exited, why are they no longer here? Maybe the environment was sufficiently different, they had difficulty adapting to it. After all, most of them were plant eaters at that time. Maybe as they grew and became large, there wasn't enough plants to sustain their size and to make them have livelihood. Perhaps another possible reason, could it be that the climate was different after the flood? There is an indication in Genesis that things prior to the flood were not the same climate-wise as it was afterward. Could that difference have been a part of their extinction? Perhaps it's possible. Maybe a third option. As I've mentioned, could it be something about the food supply for the entirety of them? These are just thoughts, possibilities that I would suggest. This much, however, we do know. Dinosaurs did exist. They were preserved aboard the ark, and they did exit the ark. 
in the time that we have been able to see thereafter, given that idea, does the Bible mention dinosaurs? Let's choose to use the latter part of our lesson then tonight and ask, does the Bible anywhere mention them? I think some interesting texts will lead us to some conclusions that might be a bit startling. As we consider the fact of the following idea, the word dinosaur admittedly is not found anywhere in the Bible. However, I believe that's easily understandable. In fact, when was the word dinosaur invented? Notice that the first person to have coined that word dinosaur was a gentleman by the, by the name of Dr. Gideon Mantell. And that was not until the year, about the year 1840. I believe it was 1842 to be exact. But let us pause and ask this. When was the King James translation of the Bible made? The year was 1611. And what about the actual Greek text that was used, the, the very one from which the New Testament writers? Well, notice that was, of course, 2,000 years ago. If a word wasn't coined until 1842, then we shouldn't be shocked that it does not appear in any text of the Bible that's dated prior to 1842. Furthermore, those particular translations that are dated since that time, such as the American Standard Version of 1901, the Revised Standard Version of 1947, the English Standard Version of 2001, just to list a few. One thus might think that the word could appear there, but there's another good reason that it doesn't. We'll need to ask about that in just a moment. In fact, there's not any translation of the Bible that I'm aware of that has the word dinosaur in it anywhere. Perhaps some reasons for that might be as we're going to study from the book of Job in just a moment. But for now, with that opening concept made, might I ask you to visit with me the 40th chapter of Job. As we read, starting in verse number 15 of that chapter, we're going to read from verses 15 through 24. And let's, in fact, listen carefully to the description that's herein given. When one arrives at the 40th chapter of Job, we find ourselves in a position where God is doing the speaking. This isn't Job. It's none of his friends. God is, in fact, answering the charges and the questions that Job has raised. And as he challenges Job, he makes note to him, Job, it's time for me to ask you some questions. You gird up your loins like a man and see if you can answer these questions. Now, in chapter 38 and 39, Job has already been peppered with questions, and now we're in the midst of chapter 40. Beginning in verse 15, God says to Job, Behold now, behemoth, which I made with thee, he eateth grass as an ox. Lo, now his strength is in his loins, and his force is in his navel of his belly. He moveth his tail like a cedar, the sinews of his bones are wrapped together. His bones are as strong pieces of brass, his bones are like bars of iron. He is the chief of the ways of God. He that made him can make his sword to approach unto him. Surely the mountains bring him forth food, where all the beasts of the field play. He lieth under the shady trees in the covert of the reed and fens. The shady trees cover him with their shadow. The willows of the brook compass him about. Behold, he drinketh up a river and hasteth not. He trusteth that he can draw up Jordan into his mouth, though Jordan swell even to his mouth. 
He taketh it with his eyes. His nose pierceth through snares. That's the description of a behemoth. And so we might now ask, what is a behemoth? It's clearly some kind of animal, some kind of creature. Perhaps you are fortunate enough to have a Bible that has a footnote, and many of them do to that series of texts. If you do, many of them will say it was possibly a hippopotamus or an elephant. In fact, there's no other animal to which I have ever seen those verses by way of commentators seem to refer. A hippopotamus or an elephant. Now, might I ask, do either of those creatures fit the description that's herein given? And let me point out two special things. In verse number 17, the tail of a behemoth is likened unto a cedar tree. May I suggest an elephant's tail is a little old thing, not much bigger around than your thumb. It certainly is no mighty thing to be likened unto a cedar. And the hippopotamus tail is even scrawnier still. I'd submit to you, whatever this animal is, it is neither a hippopotamus nor is it an elephant. In fact, according to verse number 19, this animal, the behemoth, is described as the chief of the ways of God. That word chief in the Hebrew has reference to first. This creature is a testimony to the majesty of God's creative capability. An elephant standing next to one of these dinosaurs was tiny. Remember we mentioned, say, that brontosaurus, the brachiosaurus that weighed 200,000 pounds or more? An elephant would have been nothing compared to an animal like that. And in fact, there were many of the dinosaurs larger than elephants, larger than mammoths, larger than, in fact, even the pachyderms, the other larger variety of elephants. This animal, the chief of the ways of God. Notice something else, though, stated about this animal. Verse 16, his strength is in his loins. Picture again a dinosaur, much like that Tyrannosaurus rex, reared up on its hind legs in a position of defense or a position of fighting. Where would the strength of that animal appear to be? It certainly wasn't its neck. It was in those massive legs and the muscles that were able to hold that animal up. We know today, even from studies of the human frame, how strong various bones and muscles have to be to hold up things that are massive and heavy. Think about how strong those bones would need to be not to crush beneath the weight of 200,000 pounds. I would submit that the behemoth quite likely seems to me to have been a dinosaur. All the descriptions seem to fit. In terms of the difficulty of being tameable, and notice the statement made in verse number 15. The whole purpose of God in mentioning this animal to Job is this. Behold now behemoth which I made Job. Job, can you make that behemoth over there? As a testimony of my greatness, I made that the same day I made you. Job, can you make a behemoth? Can you catch a behemoth? Can you tame a behemoth? Job's answer, of course, would have been obvious. He, like others, would have been greatly fearful of such beasts like that. And thus it would seem that here before us, without using the word dinosaur, is a description of one. They were living in Job's day. He saw them. 
But might I submit that isn't the only reference to a dinosaur it would seem in the Bible. For if one looks only one chapter further, in Job chapter 41, we notice that as God was defending his greatness and asking Job these questions about what Job was clearly unable to do and answer, God chooses to make reference to yet another animal in chapter 41. This time, since the description in fact takes the entire chapter, might I ask that we be a bit more selective and not read the entirety of chapter 41, but let me at least read the first few verses to place the questions that God asks Job. Again, God asks, Canst thou draw out Leviathan with an hook, or his tongue with a cord which thou lettest down? Canst thou put an hook into his nose, or bore his jaw through with a thorn? Will he make many supplications unto thee? Will he speak soft words unto thee? That's the first three, word, first three verses of Job 41. Now we notice a Leviathan is under description. A Leviathan is under discussion. When we come a little further in the chapter, let me begin reading in verse 15. His scales are his pride, shut up together as with a close seal. One is so near to another that no air can come between them. They are joined one to another. They stick together that they cannot be sundered. By his sneezings a light doth shine, and his eyes are like the eyelids of the morning. Out of his mouth go burning lamps, and sparks of fire leap out. Out of his nostrils goeth smoke as out of a seething pot or cauldron. His breath kindleth coals, and a flame goeth out of his mouth. In his neck remaineth strength, and sorrow is turned into joy before him. The flakes of his flesh are joined together. They are firm in themselves. They cannot be moved. His heart is as firm as a stone, yea, as hard as a piece of the nether millstone. When he raiseth up himself, the mighty are afraid. By reason of breakings, they purify themselves. The sword of him that layeth, at he, that layeth at him cannot hold the spear, the dart, nor the habergeon. He esteemeth iron as straw and brass as rotten wood. The arrow cannot make him flee. Sling stones are turned with him into stubble. Darts are counted as stubble. He laugheth at the shaking of a spear. Sharp stones are under him. He spreadeth sharp pointed things upon the mire. He maketh the deep to boil like a pot. He maketh the sea like a pot of ointment. He maketh a path to shine after him. One would think the deep to be hoary. I'll pause there. We can see again that this Leviathan is under description. Again, you may be favored with a Bible translation that has a footnote. And perhaps that footnote informs you that in the estimation of the translator or the commentator that that is likely either an alligator or a crocodile. I don't think so. Notice in the description of this creature, we notice that in verses 19 through 21, this creature was able to breathe fire. Alligators cannot do that. This creature was such that smoke could boil and billow forth from his nostrils. Somewhat like you and I may have read about ancient dragons. We in our storybooks are told, or at least mythologize, that there were creatures like that. God's making mention of a Leviathan that could do all of that. Might we notice again, nothing fits in regard to an alligator. 
Did you notice the scales that were mentioned and how close they were? Not even air can get through them. The skin of an alligator does not fit that description. This Leviathan, I would suggest, was clearly a creature that lived in the ocean. That by definition makes it not a dinosaur, since a dinosaur is land-dwelling, air-breathing. It was some, though, dinosaur-like creature that inhabited the waters. And did you notice that when it swam in verses 31 and 32, the water boiled like a pot? Notice that crocodiles and alligators swim so stealthily you hardly even know they're there. The water doesn't move hardly at all. This creature was so massive that when it swam, the water boiled like a pot. This Leviathan was something like, it would seem to me, a dinosaur. Here are two occasions they're mentioned in the Bible. Did they coexist with man? They absolutely did. If you read the other portions of that chapter, God asked Job some great questions. Job, you see that Leviathan over there? Can you catch it? Can you make it do what you want it to do? Can you tame it? And the answer again was obvious. That creature is not tameable. I would submit to you that be it the, Le the Leviathan or be it the Behemoth, we have something like a dinosaur described exactly in the Word of God and such that we know they cohabited the earth with men. It's not that millions and millions of years passed between one ever seeing the other one. They all cohabited this place together. To make those kind of statements about the behemoth and the leviathan should ever remind us that these large animals are a testimony to God's greatness. We serve and worship a God that can make creatures like that. As we bow in humility before a God like that and appreciate how awesome He is, it ever should remind us about what He can do to provide for and encourage you and me. He sent His Son to die for me and for you. This God may be great enough to make a Leviathan or a Behemoth, but He's also a God that loved you enough to send His Son to die for you. That is an amazing being, isn't it? We should ever be so appreciative and thankful for the testimony of God's Word. Things that remind us that some of the things that science does say, these theories that men have concocted, are not true like that evolutionary time scale. The dinosaurs didn't live nearly as long ago as many scientists think they did. In fact, it's been within the last 7,000 years they've been here. And since Noah's flood occurred 1,656 years after the creation, we notice that that subtracted from the current state means dinosaurs walked this earth well less now than 2,500 years ago. That's amazing, isn't it? But there are some of the errors that scientists are, are quick to refuse. They would never admit that dinosaurs live that recently. As we have studied dinosaurs tonight, and the statements the Bible has made about them, May we be reinvigorated in confidence about the presentations of the Word of God and the true power of its correctness in every regard. This evening, as we analyze each of us our lives, where do you stand before that great God that made a Leviathan or a Behemoth? Is your life pure, godly, and holy? Is your life washed in the blood of the Lamb? Revelation 7.14 says that only those that enter heaven will be the ones with their garments, robes, if you please, washed white in the blood of the Lamb. If you've never been baptized, your white robes are not washed in the blood of the Lamb. 
For it's in that act that we are washed from our sins, Acts 22.16. This evening, if you need to respond publicly, initially to the call of the gospel, appreciate that you need to hear the gospel. Believe Jesus to be the Son of God with all your heart. Repent of your sins. Come and make a verbal, audible statement of your belief that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And then simply be immersed, baptized for the forgiveness of sins. If we could help you do that tonight, what an honor it would be for us and what an eternal joy for you. If you have done that, but you have been disgraceful to the cause of Christ, you haven't lived as faithfully as you should, you've allowed temptations to draw you aside, maybe you've come to believe in things that the Bible says simply are not so. Make a change in your life. Come back to your first love. Revelation 2.5 says that upon your repentance the Lord will forgive. If we could pray on your behalf, we'd be honored also to do that tonight. If we could be of assistance in either of these public ways, or if it simply is a prayer for strength on your behalf, please don't delay, but let it be known while together we stand and while we sing.